for joining us today for the Teaching of God's Word. Um, this week at TCC, we are closing out our uh, study on relationships throughout the book of Ephesians. And so we're going to conclude our study in chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. And uh, really, to, to kind of get our minds in the right place, uh, I want us to think about the idea that we cannot separate the vertical from the horizontal. And, and there is a spiritual battle because of our relationship with Christ and then our relationship with others. There's a spiritual battle that is taking place around us, and it, and it affects our relationships. You know, as, as Pastor Michael's worked us through the entire book of Ephesians, what Paul has covered throughout the entirety of the book is, is really astounding. And we, we can't be exhaustive here, but just to give a quick recap or summary, Paul's worked through the glorious purpose of God, through, through the death and the resurrection of Christ. And, and then he, he walks through all of the spiritual blessings that are included for those who find a relationship with Christ. And then he clearly lays out this salvation and how it's obtained. It's, it's a salvation that is obtained by grace through faith and not by works. And when we do come to this relationship with Christ through salvation, we are then unified with Christ and unified with Christ's church. And so once he's laid out this theological framework, this basis of theology, Paul then shifts to the practical. And throughout this practical, he talks about what a life should look like because of this relationship with Christ. Obviously, this includes relationships, but that's certainly not all it includes. He works through the life in this newfound relationship and covers everything from the pursuit of holiness and humility, the avoidance of sexual morality, he deals with all sorts of relationships between wives and husbands and children and parents and even slaves and masters. And, and that summary certainly isn't exhaustive, but, but the, the life that Paul is talking about, that he has identified, he would even phrase as a life that is walked in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. So here's what Paul's done. He's painted this beautiful picture of what life should look like in the unity of Christ. And most, honestly, would not argue against the goal that Paul lays out before us. But as Paul brings his letter to a close, he brings us as believers to what many may actually refer to as a harsh reality. And what is this reality? He reminds us that there is real opposition to our quest. And in the finality of his thoughts, he finishes with a gentle and an instructive reminder as if to say on my way out don't miss this he says there is an unseen battle that is raging before and around us and as believers in a part of our sanctification we must be cognizant in order to remain strong paul actually introduces us to the devil uh, satan has been referenced a couple times in the book of ephesians up to this point and what's interesting to me is uh, he lays out this introduction to the devil and his schemes, but he doesn't give us some full memoir of the devil, who he is, where he's from, and, and nor does he put this introduction to pique our curiosity, to delve into things of the devil. What Paul does is he brings out the introduction in his final thoughts with a purpose. And the purpose is for us as the church to be warned of the reality of the spiritual hostility and then instruct us on how to overcome that. Let me read the passage, if you will. We're in Ephesians 
chapter 6, verse 10, and I'm going to read through 20, and then we'll walk through it together. Verse 10 says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words, my, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Gracious God, help us to divide your word rightly. And I pray that it would change us from the inside out for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. I, I love the comments of John Stott. We've referenced him a number of times throughout Ephesians. He's a well-known commentator uh, of the book of, of Ephesians. And he says this, Is God's plan to create a new society? Then they will do their utmost to destroy it. Has God, through Jesus Christ, broken down the walls, dividing human beings of different races and cultures from each other? Then the devil, through his emissaries, will strive to rebuild them. Does God intend his reconciled and redeemed people to live together in harmony and purity? Then the powers of hell will scatter among them the seeds of discord and sin. Church, these are the schemes that we should stand against. This is what would be formerly called spiritual warfare. And, and you know, as, as believers and really just as humans, we would all wish that our lives would be unscathed by any troubles. Yet in reality, today has enough troubles of its own. And amidst our everyday experiences and our close relationships, whether they be friends or familial, and even within our church family, there's trouble. Paul shifts from the painting of this beautiful picture of what life should look like in the unity of Christ to what may seem like an abrupt shift to a revolting picture of the schemes of the devil and says we should expect them. The shift may seem weird, but I think it's critical. Because in the Christian life, we must be ready for the battle. Look at verse 10. It says, finally... Be strong in the Lord. Now, don't miss this. Right out of the gate, the most important factor here is the source of the strength. The scriptures say, be strong in the Lord. The word here for in actually denotes the source from which the strength comes from. The Lord and his strength are the main point. So Paul is calling us to be strong in the Lord. What does this mean? Should we be strong physically or mentally? Not that those are bad motives or desires to have in your life, but that's not at all what Paul is referring to. Paul is referring to a spiritual strength, to an inner strength. 
And by the way, this is not a once-for-all type of strength, like you get it and you got it. There's a continual need that persists in the life of the believer. And so Paul talks about strengthening the inner man back in chapter 3, verse 16. And, and, and I even think of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 9. It says, the Lord's strength is made perfect in our weakness, recognizing we need the Lord's strength to make us strong. I, I think about the book of Jude. Um, in, in the book of Jude, the archangel Michael is, is actually contending for the body of Moses with the devil. And even the archangel Michael, it says in the scriptures, does not presume upon his own power in his dispute with the devil. But the word of the, the Lord says, the Lord rebuke you. Not even the archangel tries to use his own power to contend with the devil. Another well-known commentator, Francis Fulk, in his commentary on Ephesians, reminds us that when life is lived in union with him, that is Christ, within the orbit of his will, and so of his grace, there need not be failure due to the powerlessness, according to 1 John 2.14. Here's the deal. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. But in him, we have access to all of his strength and his might. This should really bring our minds back to chapter 1. Pastor Michael, it's been a number of weeks since he worked through this, but chapter 1, verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So the source of our strength is the Lord. And in this strength, we have access to his power and his might. But how do we see success in being Strong. Look at verse 11. It says, put on the whole armor of God. In just a minute, we'll get to a more uh, specific purpose. Uh, but for now, the way that believers are instructed to be strong in the Lord is by putting on all of the armor of God. This, this actually communicates fairly closely to how you might tell a child to put on their clothes. There's, there's some responsibility of the child, and in the same way, there's some responsibility on the believer. So, because the armor comes from the Lord, we know that the armor is spiritual. So I'm not telling you to go to the armor store, whatever that may look like, and, and buy some armor, which might be kind of cool. Um, but, but instead, it's, it's a spiritual armor, and it's provided supernaturally. Now, to come back to the child and the parent, just as a parent provides clothes for the child and often needs to assist the child in the process of clothing themselves, the child also has responsibility to help and to put on the clothes. Similarly, the believer receives the armor from the Lord and ultimately sees success with the armor because of the Lord's power. Yet there is a responsibility of the believer to put the armor on. Put it on. Put on the whole armor of God. Now, remember just for a minute, Paul would have been in prison at this time, so there was likely Roman soldiers all around him, and many commentators would even say that he was probably chained to a Roman soldier. So as he's reflecting on this spiritual battle, battle that's absolutely uh, important for us, and he's writing to one of, his, one of his beloved churches, he uses imagery around him to communicate how we are to overcome 
the spiritual battle. So why do we put on the armor? Look, look at the second part of chapter, verse 11. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The schemes of the devil could also be called the strategies of the devil. Now, I want you to notice uh, the word stand first. And this, this communicates a certain posture. It's a posture of defense, actually. And I think this is very important. Um, as Hanley Mule, another commentator on Ephesians, would state it um, in his commentary on Ephesians, he says, The present picture is not one of march or of an assault, but it is of the holding of the fortress of the soul and of the church. So church, this is a defensive war that is not to be taken lightly, nor to be fought in our own strength. We are to be standing not sitting or laying down, and we must know that the devil has schemes, real schemes. His schemes are tailored and they're strategic. They're subtle and they are enticing. They are constant and they are deceptive. And they all have one goal, to bring the Christian down, which ultimately is to steal glory from the Lord Jesus. I heard John Piper once say that the devil has schemes for every class and every race of people and every city and every country. They are tailor-made for your and my own situations to mess us up and make us weak and make us fall down and ruin our lives. Just take a quick look at the divorce rate in the church or the broken relationships amongst Christian parents and children. I could go on and on of examples at large and even in our own lives. But suffice to stay, the devil has a strategy for all of us. So, we continue down this passage. Who do we actually wrestle against? Look at verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers over the present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we first see that our enemies are not of the flesh, but they are demonic. We must not underestimate the power before us. They are rulers of this present world, knowing that according to Jesus himself in the book of John, that Jesus's kingdom is not of this world. And, and by the way, don't forget, Jesus is the one that allows them to have authority in this world. But these, these demonic spiritual powers, they, they, they are powerful to some extent. Some, some actually think the words principalities and powers may refer to some type of hierarchical ranking system in hell. I'm not going to get into all of that. But, but regardless, of the, regardless of what you think on that, the opponents have some type of control. They have some type of authority, some type of intelligence. And they control the present darkness around us. And the scripture goes on to say that they are the spiritual forces in the spiritual realm. Or the other way the scriptures say it, in the heavenly realm. But they're all around us. Now I want to pause here and I want to be really clear. What I'm not saying to you is that the devil and his adversaries are behind every bush or tree. In fact, years and years ago I used to train mission teams to go overseas and we would spend time talking about spiritual warfare because 
oftentimes America is, is either um, totally fooled or totally asleep when it comes to these things. Uh, but we would talk a lot about this. And, and so what I, don't, what I don't want to do is communicate that, that behind every single thing that is happening, that it's all the devil's fault. We do a pretty good job at being sinful on our own behalf. However, here's what I am saying. There is absolutely a demonic power full of evil schemes set out to kill, steal, and destroy. And a part of a believer's growth and sanctification is to be alert of the adversary and put on the whole armor of God. So, some practical questions. How do I stand strong against the devil? How do I keep my marriage strong against the devil? How do I keep my children from the grasp of the devil? Look at what Paul repeats. Look at verse 13. He says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. I believe the intentionality of repetition is important here. It, it's as if to communicate a clear emphasis for us to gird ourselves up and be awake for the battle. He says, doing or having done all. In other words, having done all that we can to stand firm through the strength of Christ. So then, this is what Paul does. He moves us into walking through, putting on the full armor, piece by piece, so that our whole self is protected and ready to stand. Verse 14, first part of verse 14 says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Truth is the key word here. This takes my mind to John, where he speaks of, the truth that sets us free. The gospel of Jesus itself is, is founded in truth. And, and once saved, we are called to be a truthful people. We must be true in our inner being. Let me ask you a question. Is, is truth a characteristic that defines you? Are, are we a truthful people? Are we faithful and sincere are we genuine and earnest? Do we, do we lack deceit? To be hypocritical and full of deception is to fall into the devil's schemes. Jesus said, He is the way and the truth and the light, and no man comes to Him, to the Father but through Him. Is our life a life that is defined by truthfulness? Paul is telling us, that through the power of Christ, that we should fasten on ourselves truthfulness, leaving no room for the devil to meddle. Look at the latter part of verse 14. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Once again, drawing our minds to the key word. It's righteousness. And, and this word righteousness, honestly... From, from what from what I can see is is it, it seems to carry a weight in two manners. Number one, the, the first in which is, is is in regards to the righteousness that comes from a right relationship and union with Christ. So as, as if to say that when sinners are put into a right relationship with Christ, there's a certain spiritual protection that, that's included. So prior to Christ we were 
in enmity to God. We were enemies of him. Now that we have a relationship with Jesus, we are in right standing with him, in a union with him, in righteousness with him. And because of that, there's a certain amount of spiritual protection that comes along with that. And I think this is really important, by the way, because outside of a personal relationship with Christ, there is no real protection from the schemes of the devil. The second manner or weight that I think this word righteousness carries seems to also refer to a Christian's behavior in their life. A sure way to assist in overthrowing the assaults and temptations of the devil is for a Christian to cultivate a life of righteousness. Romans 6 tells us that we're not to present the members of our body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present them to God as instruments for righteousness. The idea is that in the power of the Spirit, we should pursue righteous things. Or to put it more simply, do what is right. Ephesians 6, 8 reminds me uh, that what we do is seen. We talked about that in our small group this past week. What we do is seen by God. So, strap to ourselves righteousness that is instituted by an initial relationship with Christ and carried out through the power of the Spirit. Move down to verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So, you don't often go anywhere without shoes on. Unless, of course, you grew up where I did, and we did everything with our shoes off. Uh, all jokes aside, we, we did when we were young. But, but to be serious, when, when you set out to do something specific, you, you, you rarely avoid putting on shoes. I don't, I don't care if it's going to work in the public square, or if it's running, or working in the yard. You put on shoes, and so shoes are put on our feet to help us achieve the job set before us. And in this case, in a battle scenario, shoes are pertinent to our ability to be agile and ready and poised for what may come. Paul actually takes it a little further, and he attaches the gospel of peace to the imagery of shoes. So this will probably probably be a simple reminder for, for most of us, but no less helpful. We need the gospel every single day. We needed the gospel to enter into our relationship with Jesus, where prior there was no peace between us and Jesus. And, and we need the gospel daily to remind us of our desperate need of Christ moment by moment. If, if the gospel is at your and my forefront, if it's in our minds and hearts continually, there's almost no opportunity for the devil to see success in his schemes. When we're thinking on and speaking about resting in the gospel regularly, we are ready and prepared for anything that may come our way. So, in the power of the Spirit, through the strength and might that we are given in Christ, 
we must continually nurture and cultivate the gospel in our day to day. Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So we have this defensive tool, right? This shield. And it seems we should obviously expect some flaming darts of, of whatever that means. And so faith is the key operative word here. What are the fiery darts he mentions? John Piper is especially helpful here when he says, Now fiery darts can come at you at the moment of disappointment or regret or anger or fear or loneliness or incapacitating grief. When you put up the shield of faith, practically, what do you do? What do you really do? What do you believe? What does faith believe at that moment? And the answer is, faith moves through the memory bank of the Bible, laying hold on particularly suited promises for that very crisis. Paul is telling us that pressing into the faith that we had been given by Christ is like a shield of protection against the flaming darts from the devil. So, no matter the circumstance, the announcement of cancer, the lost job, the deep hurt by a friend or a spouse, the death of a loved one, the disunity amongst our culture and our church, yet another announcement of statewide lockdown. The only way we protect ourselves from the schemes of the devil in these moments is to turn to our faith in the whole promise of God. Christ did die. He did raise again for sinners like you and me. And he will one day return. And in the in-between, we must stand firm in strength through the Spirit and let our faith carry us through. Look at verse 17. First part, he says, And take the helmet of salvation. Now, the helmet in battle oftentimes had two purposes. Uh, one would be decorative and the other would be protective, right? So um, they would often serve as a quick way to recognize a certain soldier uh, while also protecting the head, okay? Pretty, pretty straightforward. Paul, Paul seems to be drawing our minds to the word salvation. So let me put it hopefully simply. We as Christians should be most recognized by the salvation of Christ and we should be continually reminded that there is no greater protection for the believer than the salvation of Jesus Christ himself. Charles Hodge, a well-known theologian from the 19th century, he says this, and he says it well, I think. He says, That which adorns and protects the Christian, which enables him to hold up his head and with confidence and joy, is the fact that he is saved. Well, more can be said. The greatest hope in life and in death is our salvation. And so Paul is calling us by the power of the Spirit to adorn ourselves with the reminder and the assurance of our salvation because our hope is found in nothing less. It's found in Jesus. 
And so we can confidently say things like, no power of hell, no scheme of man. Nothing can distract us from the pursuit of Christ before us if through the power of the Spirit we are adorning ourselves with the salvation of Jesus. The end of verse 17, he says, after the helmet of salvation, he says, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, this is quite possibly the most notable piece of armor that people tend to remember and, and even refer to when they talk about Ephesians 6. I mean, I'm glad for that. The, the Word of God is important. Uh, and so the, the scripture is clear here that the Word of God is the sword of spirit. And, and might I add, this is the only offensive part of the armor. Um, the rest that is mentioned is, is defensive. And so this begins to potentially paint, paint a picture of a believer standing firm in opposition from the devil, protected by all sorts of spiritual armor. And then occasionally, the believer must strike. But not just any sword will do. The only effective sword is the Word of God. We, we see this really simply demonstrated by Jesus himself when he's in the wilderness fighting the temptations of the devil. And, and what does he do? He quotes the Word of God. Christ himself could have responded in, in a million other ways. I mean, come on, like the devil is, is trying to tempt Jesus, who is our Lord, and promise the giving to Jesus of things that Jesus created. And so Jesus would have been perfectly justified with a full-on rebuke. But instead, he exemplified what Paul is teaching us here. And he fights with the word of God. Now, I think there's some pretty hard implications, at least for me here, and maybe you can relate. Um, but there's a couple things I want to draw out. Number one, we must, we must know the Bible. Number two, we must read the Bible. Number three, we must seek to memorize the Bible. And, and, and number four, we must see the words of Scripture as a necessary tool in the spiritual battle that wages war around us. Here's the deal, church. If we as believers expect to see victory in the midst of our daily battles against the schemes of the devil, yet we do not prioritize the word of God in our lives, we will often find ourselves defeated. Paul is saying, take up the word of God. And just as a swordsman would practice and sharpen and know his weapon inside and out, we too must, in the power of the Spirit, approach our time in the Word in the same manner. In every temptation that may arise, quoting the Scriptures should be a part of a normal cadence. Then we move down to verse 18, and Paul brings in this aspect of prayer. Look what he says. He says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. This includes all kinds of prayer at all times. So I, I feel like it, it's, it's fair to say that, that this requirement seems to permeate all of the aforementioned armor. So the request is comprehensive and, and should be 
a major characteristic in the life of a believer. Our, our lives should be, uh, a major part of our lives in Christ should be prayerful. Many commentators point out the, the four parts of uh, this, this mentioned prayer, and I'll just lay them out quickly because I think they're helpful to us. The first is, he mentions, Paul mentions that, that this prayer should be at all times. So it's a never-ceasing kind of prayer, which is mentioned in Thessalonians. It's a constant and a normal and a, and a regular type of prayer. And, and honestly, it should be so normal that not praying should feel abnormal. The second thing that he points out is, he says, with all prayer and supplication. So all types of prayer that we see in Scripture should include should be included in our daily cadence of, of prayer. We've used a number of acronyms here at TCC, um, and there's, there's a lot of tools out there to help you think through that, but it suffice to say the Scripture has all sorts of prayer, and we should be including all of that in the way we pray to the Lord. Third, it says with all perseverance, and, and honestly, this seems to be tied to being alert. So we must persevere in prayer, so that we don't fall asleep. I think of a couple places in Scripture that this plays out. 1 Peter 5, 6 and down. He says, the devil prowls around, seeking to devour, so we must be so reminded and watchful. Even in the garden, prior to Jesus' arrest, he has his three closest friends, and he tells them to stay awake and pray while he himself goes and prays. Coincidentally, they fall asleep. How many of us are asleep? When it comes to prayer. I think the, the fourth point here that's important is it tells us to make supplication for the saints. And so referring back to our new unity with Christ, we are also unified with one another, the church. And even in, in Peter, we're reminded that our brethren across the world are suffering the same various trials that we are. And so a part of our prayer life should be praying for the saints, praying for one another, praying for the saints across the world. So Paul is telling us that there should be an incredible dependence on, pr of, on prayer in the midst of the spiritual war around us. That in all of the girding of the armor, prayer must be in and all around the battle. May the Spirit of God help us as a church to develop into a prayerful church. We get closer to the end of our passage today, verse 19, Paul continues and he says, And also for me, in reference to prayer, that my words be given to me in opening my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. What's so striking to me is that Paul was in chains, yet he did not pray for his release or even for his comfort or circumstance. Paul, Paul prayed that he would have the words and the boldness to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Now, am I saying it's wrong to pray for our circumstances? No. But how often do those prayers take up our prayer life? And further, why did, why did Paul pray like this? Why did he respond like this? Is it because Paul was a perfect, sinless man? And, and I want everyone at TCC to be just like Paul? No. 
No, not at all. I, I believe Paul responded this way because he was taking his own advice. He was, through the might of the Lord, putting on the whole armor of God. And because he was so enamored and so distracted by the gospel of Jesus Christ that the devil had no room for his schemes. And the fruit of the Spirit was what came out in Paul's life. I think that's what Paul is asking of us here. He's, he's saying, church, pay attention. The battle is real. But don't fret because you have the answer. And it's the power and strength and the might of Christ. Now gird yourself up with it. I want you to stop and think with me just for a brief minute. What if we as believers found ourselves in the same posture as Paul in, in the midst of his circumstance? What if our response to the pandemic or our response to the political and racial disunity around us or our response to a broken familial relationship or even an outside family relationship what if our response to all of this, the loss of a job, the announcement of, of, of a sickness, the fear and uncertainty of the future, what if our response to all of that was simply to put on the whole armor of God and pray for the simple words and the boldness to share Christ? Instead, what do we often do? We pursue deceit and laziness, and unrighteousness. We lack the peace of the gospel in our thoughts and in our interactions, especially on social media platforms. We respond almost as if people who either have no faith or have faith in the wrong things. We forget the great salvation that has brought us to where we are, and we are puffed up with pride. And we are lackadaisical and apathetic at best in our time in memorization of God's word. I don't want to beat us up today, church, but I do want us to be honest. And I want to call us to repentance in any way that we need to personally. Maybe repent of these ways and ask the Lord to breathe new life in the appropriate areas. And I'm not asking you to do these things on your own strength. I don't want you to gird up your own loins. I don't want you to try harder for these areas to be better in your life. No, not at all. What I'm asking of you is, is this. I'm asking you today to invite the Spirit of God to search you and to know you and show you where there is need for work. And when He does, because He will, I'm asking that you cry out to God in repentance for forgiveness in those areas and then ask him through the power of the Spirit and in his might, according to Ephesians 6, that he would produce great fruit and great victory against the schemes of the devil. That's what I'm asking. And I want you to notice my ask of you is, has nothing to do with your own power and your own strength. It has everything to do with God. For some listening today, you, you may not have a relationship with Christ, and 
we've established early on that apart from a relationship with Christ, there is no real protection from from the schemes of the devil. And and this, my friend, is or can be the first step uh, for you to know Christ personally. And, and the scriptures say that if you'll confess your sin to Jesus and you will believe with your heart that he is Lord, you shall be saved. And so I would love to know that. Pastor Michael would love to know that. Someone within our church would love to know that that's where you're at, or even if you have questions about that, we would love to know that. That's why we do what we do. Because the greatest hope, and really the only hope in all of life, is salvation in Christ. Paul then finishes verse 20, and he says, For which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And, and really, this is a simple reminder for us as believers, that just as Paul is an ambassador wanting to declare the gospel boldly as he ought to, that we should do the same. So my prayer for TCC is that we too would see that we are ambassadors chained to Jesus, a good and gracious God that's worthy, and that we would ask God to help us be strong in the Lord and in his strength and in his might to avoid the schemes of the devil. Let's pray.